So hello and welcome to Jewel to Detail and I'm your host Mark Rittman. So my guest on this week's show is someone who you may have seen present at the recent Google Next event in San Francisco, alongside one of the first guests we had on the show back in October last year, Dan McClary. So the guest this week is uh, Daniel Mintz, who is the Chief Data Evangelist at Looker. And I'm very pleased to welcome him onto Jewel to Detail to talk about Looker, data modeling on Google BigQuery, and where BI tools are going in this new world of cloud and big data. So Daniel, welcome and thank you for coming on the show. And maybe just introduce yourself properly to the, uh, to the audience. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Mark. So, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think maybe I, I'll start with the funny story of how I came to Looker, um, you know, because I actually I uh, was a Looker customer for a long time before I was a Looker, uh, Looker staff member, a Looker uh, employee. And, you know, I um, my previous role before I came to Looker was uh, working at the media company Upworthy. And when I came on, they were about a year into their history. They were just starting to get serious about data. Um, you know, and they didn't have really a data stack to speak of. This was in early 2013. And so big queer, uh, excuse me, Redshift, Amazon Redshift had just come out of, uh, out of beta and was first really available to the public. I kind of looked at our options and, uh, quickly settled on that as our, our data warehouse. But then the, the next question was, well, what's going to sit on top of our data warehouse? What's our, our BI tool going to be so that people can actually access the data? Obviously, you know, me and my team, we were comfortable enough using uh, using a SQL runner, but uh, most of the folks at, at Upworthy weren't going to do that. So, you know, I was looking at different BI tools and I think a, a co-investor of ours at Upworthy and uh, and Lookers said, you know, oh, you're if you're looking at BI tools, you should check out this this little startup. Uh, out of Santa Cruz that I've invested in called Looker. I said, sure. Uh, so I hopped on the phone with um, with Lloyd Tab, who's Looker's co-founder, and uh, and Keenan Rice, who was the only business guy at the at the company at that point. Um, and, you know, they we got on the call. Keenan realized pretty quickly uh, as a good, smart business guy that Lloyd and I spoke the same language. And so he should really get out of the way. Uh, and and so Lloyd, you know, and I started chatting and Lloyd said, well, you know what Looker is, is we're a platform. We sit on top of, of your database. You tell Looker what your data means. You define, uh, you know, the relationships between your, your tables and the business logic that you have uh, in LookML, which is our, our data modeling language, our, our sort of abstraction of SQL. And then Looker will write the SQL. And so then you can expose to the business user just a, a sort of drag and drop interface where they can ask questions of the data themselves without having to rely on an analyst to write SQL for them. And I, being the sort of skeptical analyst that I am, was uh, less than convinced that this was a real thing because I, you know, I, I, I will say I kind of imagined that that kind of thing had existed, uh, but I'd never really seen it in action. And yet within 10 minutes, Lloyd, you know, had connected Looker to, to our Redshift cluster um, and was kind of saying, ask me anything. Uh, and so we were, you know, I was asking him questions and he was answering them and showing me things in my data that I had never seen before, uh, which was a pretty weird experience for, for someone I had just met to be finding things in, in our data that I didn't know about. Um, and so, you know, I think that experience of of seeing a tool that could really sort of write whatever SQL I needed it to and do so in a in a performant, clean way um, that that gave everybody in our company the, the ability to ask questions of the data and get sort of reliable answers pretty quickly was was pretty amazing. And so over the the next three years, you know, the tool really grew. I, I will say that when I first when we first signed up for Looker, I think we were customer number twenty one. 
Um, and the tool, the promise was there. The tool was not quite where it needed to be yet. You know, uh, there were no dashboards. There were very basic visualizations, uh, no ability to sort of do calculations on on uh, data results that had come back from the, the database already. So you couldn't, you know, add column A to column B to get column C. Everything had to be done in, in SQL. Um, and so that was, uh, you know, that over the, the success of three years, the tool really got better and, and stayed on the trajectory to live up to the promise that sort of Lloyd had laid out in that very first meeting. Um, and so when I was starting to think about what my next move would be, what, you know, as I was getting ready to leave Upworthy, I was talking to Lloyd um, and he said, you know, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I'm, you know, I'm not sure. Uh, and he said, well, when you figure it out, tell me. And I said, well, I, you know, I do miss writing and thinking and talking about how to do data and analytics well, how to do it properly, because I think a lot of folks don't do it well. And so I like thinking about that question of how do you teach people to use analytics effectively? And, and he said, oh, like, like evangelism, like you want to evangelize for data? And I said, uh, yeah, I guess that's a, a reasonable, uh, you know, summation of what I want to do. And he said, well, we need an evangelist. Why don't you come be the evangelist at Looker? Um, and so so here I am now uh, a year later. Fantastic. Fantastic. And and so, I mean, just as a, as a kind of context, I mean, I, I'm using Looker day in, day out at the moment. The company I'm, I'm doing some work with at the moment is using Looker to, to build a um, a BI, uh, I suppose, platform or tool on top of kind of Google BigQuery. And mm -hmm. it, it's it's an interesting kind of uh, exercise to go through because a lot of the, and we'll get onto this later on in the conversation, but a lot of the concepts that you're talking about with Looker are fairly kind of like, you know, established concepts in the world of, I suppose, enterprise BI and CRM and so on, you know, writing SQL against a kind of a, a model and then generating SQL against that and, and abstraction layers and so on. But that's something that's very kind of uh, up till now fairly unknown in the kind of big data world because of various, I guess, kind of like differences in that world compared to say working with small data sets on in in say i suppose kind of you know structured databases um just tell us a bit about uh, tell us a bit about the foundation story of, of looker and because how what, what was the kind of thinking behind looker as a company and, and and the product and in this new market what problem is it trying to solve and for who really yeah i mean i think you know when we look back at the history of bi you know, I think you, as you said, you this isn't brand new, uh, a brand new idea uh, by any means. And when you look, you know, way back to the 80s and you look at folks like Cognos and business objects and MicroStrategy, you know, they had this idea. It was there. Now, obviously, the 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 underlying database technology back then um, was not where it is today, to say the very least, right? And so, you know, as a as a result, like first of all, the the data volumes that they were dealing with were were far far smaller, orders of magnitude smaller. Partially just because rather than you know machines generating the data, you actually had people generating the data, so there just wasn't that much of it. Um, but even so, you know, what you saw was as data volumes grew, the the appliances couldn't keep up, and so. You know, you did cubing, you did summarization, you did anything that you needed to to get the data small enough so that you could access it and and get your answers. Um, but that idea of a of a sort of rigid model was really core to that sort of first wave of BI, right? This idea that IT is going to own the tool; they're the ones who are going to own the definitions of the data, the the business logic, and so that's great because it means when you ask. Uh, a question of, of your tool, you know that the answer is right. It's been vetted. It's not up for grabs. Um, and, you know, and so that was where people were at. But over time, I think, 
you know, the rigidity, people got frustrated with that rigidity, right? They got frustrated with the summarization, frustrated with the cubing, frustrated with the inability to sort of be agile and get answers to new questions. And so you see the rise of these second wave tools, which, you know, are mostly visual discovery tools, tools like Tableau and Click, um, you know, where the idea is more around self-service. And I think when we look at the choices that they made, I would say we agree with a lot of them. The idea of self-service is great. The idea of, of you know, getting rid of cubes, getting rid of summarization, keeping the sort of higher resolution in the data, we totally agree with that. But I think they maybe threw the baby out with the bathwater. And so throwing out that model, I think, was a real mistake. You know, throwing out a shared understanding of what the data means makes it much harder to get real business value from your data. And I don't, I don't think that it was a, a sort of dumb uh, decision that they made. I think they were really constrained by the technology of their time. And, you know, you they were they were building tools that were mostly running on these, you know, faster laptops and desktops that people had at the time, but not were, were sort of disconnected from the warehouse because the warehouse certainly couldn't keep up with the demands of of an agile workflow. Um, and so, you know, because you lost your connection to the mothership there, you lost this model that that told you what the data meant. Um, and so that, you know, sort of self-service workbook BI, you know, had real advantages in terms of speed to, you know, to, to getting answers, but it also exposed you to this possibility that you were getting an answer, you were getting it fast, but it wasn't the right answer. Um, and so with the advent of this, this new wave of, of tools, you know, I think really starting with Redshift, frankly, um, not that there weren't, you know, amazing MPP databases before then, but they were mostly on premise. They were very expensive. Um, you know, and then you see Redshift come out as a cloud uh, MPP warehouse columnar data store, and that really changes the game. And then you see, you know, BigQuery, which had been Google's internal uh, tool uh, for a long time. They they repurpose it as a product that can be sold to the market. Um, you see, you know, Vertica be available in the cloud. You see a big uh, wave of of SQL on Hadoop tools that are cloud based. Um, you see Snowflake. So you just see this huge wave of, of really, really fast, cheap uh, data warehouses. And all of a sudden, that makes it possible to keep the agility that you wanted from that second wave tool, that self-service idea, but also keep a model uh, that had come from the first wave tool. And so you, you kind of get the best of both worlds. And that's really where Looker is aiming. Uh, that you know, we think of it as a third wave where you've got all the agility, all the self-service uh, that you had with the the sort of desktop workbook based tools, but also the shared understanding of the data and the trustworthiness that comes with that, the reliability that comes with that, that you had with the with the old school BI tools. Yeah. So so I mean within the within the world that I'm working at the moment, Looker is 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 the kind of the hot new BI tool. It's the hot new kind of startup. But Looker might not be so well known to to I suppose people who are more used to using kind of Oracle and Cog and Cognos and so on. Who who are the who's the typical kind of like customer for, for Looker and who are the typical kind of developers and users that are that are working with the tool? Yeah, I mean, we so we're in terms of uh, companies that are using us, we're up over 800. And, you know, I think, as you said, we we are first the first place that we slotted in that people really got Looker very quickly was in the sort of venture back tech 
Silicon Valley group, uh, not hugely surprisingly, lots of people speak SQL there. Um, you know, they don't have big million dollar investments in exist existing stacks that they, um, you know, that there's a sort of sunk cost there. Um, but more and more we're seeing, you know, larger companies, enterprise companies who have these longstanding tools uh, in place, you know, they're both starting to transition their on-premise data warehouses uh, to the cloud and also starting to consider new, more flexible tools. And, you know, we generally don't see them saying, oh, well, we've spent, you know, $5 million on this BI tool over the last 20 years. We're going to throw it out and start fresh. That That is generally not the way that these things go. It is much more frequently that they, you know, have an, a new project that they're working on and they want more flexible data access. And so they, rather than continuing to sort of add to the the rigid architecture that they had, they they start with a new implementation of Looker and then, you know, another team inside the company sees that and says, well, why, why can they ask any question that they want and get an answer, in, you know, in seconds that I want that. Um, and so then, you know, more, they sort of evangelize it internally and more teams start to pick it up. Yeah, I mean, so the experience we had in the, in the place I'm at now um, was that you know, internally there was use of, of Tableau, for example. And so Tableau connects to BigQuery, as you're probably aware, you know, and it's you can create some pretty nice kind of data visualizations in there. And that was typically sure. yeah. that was typically the tool that was given to, uh, I suppose, people working um, as kind of strategists or analysts or whatever. But the limitation with that with that was was a few things. So it was very much kind of silo based, uh, and so people would build a report based on a particular topic area and then typically you'd need they'd need to write a custom piece of sql to populate the, the tableau extract because really and this is the thing that one day engineers i refer look at was that you could then actually Looker was very very good at retrieving the data live from from say bigquery uh, whereas tableau is always really going via a cache you know and certainly in that respect as a bi tool we found that kind of Looker was was a better SQL engine, for example, than Tableau. But the thing that that, that really kind of made the impact um, with people I've seen use Looker is this kind of is the use of the model, is the use of this kind of semantic model where you can just explore all your data and there's no kind of like having to join data and so on there. But do you find that's a concept that's sometimes quite hard to explain to people, to engineers particularly? I mean, it's almost like a sort of Stockholm syndrome, isn't there, with, with a lot of engineers where you're used to you're used to kind of data analysis being hard. To try and explain to them it can be easy. It must be hard sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, um, I, I would say the people who, uh, I, I tend to think of our users in sort of three big buckets. You know, there's the data analysts who, um, who speak SQL, uh, who have had ready access to the data, who know the power of being able to answer their own questions with data. Um, and for them, Looker, I would say the, the biggest advantage of Looker for them is that they spend a lot less time writing, writing one-off queries for their, their colleagues, right? They, rather than spending, you know, they send, someone comes with a request and then they come back a day later and they say, so I know you wrote me that query, but it uh, turns out I need six months of data and I need it broken down by state, not by country. But it's the classic uh, thing, isn't it, in BI? Every, every question you have has another question after it, doesn't it, really? For sure. And so, you know, that's just as an analyst myself, that's a that's really not a fun use of your time. Um, it just feels like a never, there's a never ending queue. It's always growing. It is, you know, and it just prevents you from doing higher value analysis because you're just stuck answering one off questions. And so the analysts like Looker for that reason. But I would say that the people for whom Looker is is most sort of life changing are the people who are very analytically minded. You know, there may be an Excel wizard 
wizard or a Tableau desktop wizard, but they've always relied on IT or the analyst organization to do the data extraction for them because they don't speak SQL, or maybe they speak just enough SQL to get themselves in trouble, but not enough to get themselves out of trouble. And so all of a sudden they go from having to wait for each new workbook to be built so that they can explore in it to being able to access the data directly, right? And that is a radical change for them. Um, you know, they all of a sudden the, the the sort of speed with which they can iterate goes from you know one iteration per day to one in per iteration per minute. You know, they come up with a new question based on the answer, and and then they that gives them an answer, and then they come up with a new question, and they get the answer to that all all instantly. And that's that's just a huge change. And these are the people who really already know how to use good data to make better decisions. And so that's a huge boost to the to the enterprise as a whole because all of a sudden the people who are analytically minded have access to the data. And then I think the third group are the sort of more data consumers, the people who need their reports, need their dashboards, um, you know, but but that's they kind of rely on those and they're not going to do a ton of exploration. But what we do see with those folks is more and more of them get the dashboard, you know, the looker dashboard in their email. It, it arrives on Monday morning and they say, huh, that's weird. I wonder why sales were down on Friday. And rather than having to go to an analyst to get an answer to that question, they instead can just click on the dashboard and that drills into and brings them to a place where they can start exploring. And whereas, you know, a sort of blank template would be pretty intimidating to them. Uh, uh, you know, the thing about Looker is, is that it brings them right into a, a context that already exists. Someone has already built an exploration and and answered that that first question of sales were down on Friday. And they say, well, maybe I'll I'll look by country to see if maybe there was a holiday in one country and that's why they were down. So you know, all they have to do is click one thing to add that new dimension, and all of a sudden they've got more information, and they can see not just what happened, but maybe why it happened. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the way I describe it is about two things. It's about reducing. If you're if you're if you're an analyst and you're trying to understand data and explore it, you need. We're looking to reduce the friction in, involved in that process, and certainly, yep. certainly by making it everything pre-joined a semantic model um, and and so on. It means that they can follow the train of thought much easier, really, and explore the data and understand it. And that that group you described, you know, what I would call kind of strategists, really, they are the ones I think that, that really benefit out of this. Um, in, in the past, their job has often been like chess by post in some respects, where you'd sort of like write a move yeah, down and post it exactly. off, and a week later you'd get an answer back. The, the difference has been been astounding, really, for people working with this. Just being able to kind of uh, to just explore the data and just kind of, I suppose, make data driven decisions. Whereas in the past, it was it was hard to do that, really. So. Um, so let's kind of look a little bit into it. So, so for all listeners on this show, certainly they don't come from a, a more traditional background. What you're describing is 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 something very familiar. But there's certain ways that I think Looker have approached this kind of uh, problem in, in that's different to before. And I think one of the ways that's interesting and it would be good for you to talk us through it is this concept of LookML and the way that the kind of modeling works. Because as you rightly said. This has been done before, but it's been done in a way that was not all that agile and, and probably was a bit out of step with how things are developed now. So maybe tell us a bit about what LookML is. What is the problem it was solving again? And paint a picture a little bit of what it does and, and, and kind of the approach that you, you've got with that, really. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I talked a bunch about this at, at Google Next, but I think when you when you look at um, at the development of programming languages, you know, the <laughs> there's been enormous progress over the last you know, really since the beginning of programming languages, but you look at like C, right, which is 
still runs the world fundamentally. You know, 98% of, of programs eventually compile down to C and then from there, right? Or I don't know exactly what the stat is, but, you know, fundamentally it is still there at the base, but most people, most of the time are not writing in C. Um, and that's because they mostly don't care about the low level concerns that C makes very easy to control. So things like garbage collection, um, you know, most of the time you're okay with the, the higher level programming languages worrying about memory management, you know. Um, and so folks have invented these these higher level languages, these abstraction la layers that allow people to not worry about the, the little stuff so that they can worry about the, the bigger questions, which is how do I quickly, you know, prototype an application? Um, and that would be a lot faster in, in Python or Rails than it's going to be in C. And so, you know, when you look at the parallel evolution on the data side, you know, you see SQL comes about in the same decade as C and still really does fundamentally run the world in terms of how people access data. But the, the amount of of uh, advancement that has been made in SQL is pretty minimal, right? You know, you look at T-SQL comes out in the late 80s, and then MySQL and Postgres in the mid-90s, and, the, you know, you get a new version of Postgres or MySQL every so often, uh, and not much more than that. Um, and so we're still at the same level of abstraction, right? We're still worrying about, oh, which dialect am I in? How do I, does this one, you know, use subqueries or does it use common table expressions? How does this one do date handling? You know, all of these little things that, that you just really shouldn't have to worry about. Computers are great at worrying about those things and humans have bigger things to worry about. And so what LookML is, is it's an abstraction layer on top of SQL. It's still maintains all of the power and the versatility, um, the provenness of SQL, but it allows you not to worry about things like, oh, what is the foreign key primary key relationship for those two tables? I will define that once, and then anytime that I want to join those tables, I'll let the computer know that I have defined that join, and it will figure out what the correct join logic is, right? Um, and so that, you know, LookML is a way to define all of that logic, all that business logic once, and then let Looker write, you know, performant, clean SQL uh, on top of that. And, and one of the amazing things, I was just looking at this, but Looker now, I believe with the addition of Google Cloud Spanner, which they just released two weeks ago, I believe we now support 33 different dialects of SQL. And the thing about LookML is because it's an abstraction of SQL, it doesn't care what the underlying dialect is. And so we've actually had customers who, you know, have built these whole models in LookML, have been on one database, been using one dialect, and then decided that they wanted to switch databases and switch dialects. And that, that process, which normally would mean rewriting every single line of SQL, is seamless because they just point Looker at the new connection and Looker says, oh, I speak that dialect too. So when I compile my LookML down to SQL, rather than compiling it to SQL dialect A, I will compile to SQL dialect B. And so what, you know, I think my experience with SQL is that there are a bunch of problems with it. You know, it's not reusable. I, I, I frankly can't even read um, SQL that I've written, you know, a week or two ago, rather than than trying to understand that, that giant block of SQL that I wrote. I just start from scratch because it's easier. Um, and, you know, in reading somebody else's SQL in their own style with their own, you know, syntactic conventions is, is basically impossible. So, um, you know, uh, I, I don't, <laughs> it's not collaborative, it's not reusable, uh, it's not version controlled because it's not organized the way that, you know, normal programming uh, languages are. 
Uh, and then, you know, it, it just makes you deal with all these low level things. You know, when I was at the, the first company where I was learning SQL, there was an order table. And to make sure that you uh, excluded all the failed credit card transactions, you had to say order status equals completed. And you had to do that on every query that you ran against the orders table, even though 95% of the time when you ran a query against that table, you didn't want the failed credit card transactions, right? Um, but as a default, if you wanted to exclude them, you had to remember that where clause. And if you didn't, you would all of a sudden think, wow, sales were through the roof, but they weren't. You just were including all these failed transactions. Um, and so, you know, it even for somebody who is very good at writing SQL, it becomes very easy to make stupid mistakes in SQL. And so LookML says, oh, when I explore the orders table, by default, apply the order status equals completed filter. And I can remove it if I want. But since I know 95% of the time I'm going to want it, let's let's apply that by default, right? And it doesn't make you reshape the underlying data, which is hard. And once your model and your data get intermingled, it gets very difficult to be agile because every change requires reprocessing all your data, reformatting your schemas, all of that. But you know, by keeping the modeling layer agile and and separate from your data, I can say, you know order status equals completed. And then, you know, we change something in the application and now it's order status equals complete. But I can make that change in the model. And as soon as I do, it propagates out. And now every query that runs against my my database, when it hits the orders table, it knows now that it's called order status equals complete instead of completed or whatever it is, right? And so that that agility is incredibly useful because today's businesses, you know, the, the structure of their data is just changing all the time. Mm. Yeah, I mean, so so it was interesting that again coming from a, coming from a, a history of using tools with these kind of semantic models and abstraction layers and query generation engines, it was interesting that that Looker took the approach of I suppose making SQL more agile and uh, and more abstracted rather than say building a graphical interface and saying look you know you just define things like dimensions and metrics and, and and kind of fact tables and so on was was there a specific sort of decision to go down the route of sort of like a, a markup type language as opposed to using graphical tool for this. For sure, that was not an accident. You know, yeah. uh, Lloyd Tab, the founder who I was talking about, you know, he he's been around for a while. His um, he was a, a database and languages architect back at Borland. Uh, he was the the architect on Netscape Navigator Gold. Um, so he's he's seen a fair amount, and you know, his experience with uh, GUI based languages that that allow you to sort of you know, um, to define relationships and things like that is that they get very unwieldy very quickly. Um, you know, and and that's been my experience too with all kinds of of uh, graphical you know languages. You know, for the same reason that we don't use cuneiform, uh, that we use actual words, right? Languages are are great. They are really good at communicating things, and so you know, in different kinds of kinds of languages excel at different things. And you know, so um, natural language is great, but it's not extremely precise, I would say, whereas computer languages, programming languages are extremely precise because they need to be And you know, an analysis, analytics is really a precise discipline. And so because SQL, I think part of the reason that that analysts love SQL so much is because it it is structured the way that they think about problems. It forces them to think about the, the analytic problems they're trying to solve in the right way. And so we didn't want to reinvent that wheel. You know, like I said, SQL has been around for 40 years. It is it's everywhere, um, you know, and I think even in the sort of last 10 years where you saw Hadoop start to make uh, a push against SQL, 
I think you've pretty quickly seen SQL push back successfully, right? You've seen all of the, the columnar MPP data stores, which use some version of SQL, and even then all the, the Hadoop dialects, uh, which actually are building SQL on Hadoop structures, whether it's Spark SQL or Impala or Presto uh, or Hive, you know, you see that that the, the Hadoop communities have realized that people really do want to write SQL when they're doing analytics. And so, um, you know, given that, it's it just, why, why reinvent that wheel, right? You know, the same way that the programmers didn't invent whole new languages that, that went around C, they, they invented languages that built on top of C. Mm, yeah. So, so another thing that has been quite useful for what we're doing is, is certainly within, say, the e-commerce space, and, and, and uh, there's a lot of you know, what we call in, in, in the kind of database world, things like many-to-many relationships and lots of opportunities for things like kind of double counting of aggregates and, and all this kind of stuff. And one of the things that we found LookML particularly good for is dealing with those things like double counting and the way that you do aggregation within these kind of like data sets and so on. Is that something, again, that that, you're, that, that it was deliberate in there? Is, is that something you build in, particularly for this kind of market and the type of data you're working with? Yeah, I mean, so I think you're referring specifically to something that we call symmetric aggregates. Yes, that's Which right, is, yeah. you know, it, it when you fan out, you know, the classic example is like, uh, you know, uh, users and orders, right? You know, a user can have multiple orders. And so if you just count user, the user's table, you get the correct answer. But if you count users and you've joined the orders table, now it's going to tell you that there are a lot more users than, than there actually are. And so you have to do count distinct user user ID or whatever it is, right? And, and you know, what we found with LookML and particularly with its sort of reusability paradigm is that you can actually achieve things with SQL, which you normally wouldn't think were achievable, right? Because SQL is, it has been a write only language, right? Something that you write, but you never go back and read or elaborate on. Um, I think we, we've underestimated what it's capable of. And so, you know, particularly around symmetric aggregates, we, we actually use a function, which I never knew was part of the ANSI SQL standard, but is called some distinct, you know, everybody's familiar with count distinct, but it turns out there's actually average distinct and some distinct as part of the, the ANSI SQL standard. And so if you, uh, if you know what the primary key is, you can avoid uh, summing its value more than once or averaging its value more than once by looking at that that primary key. And so this is something that you would never, ever want to write if you were writing SQL by hand. But when LookML is doing it for you, when Looker is, is doing the, the SQL writing for you, it becomes very simple. Um, and these things that, that look pretty complicated um, actually are not particularly um, compu- computationally intensive. And so the databases can achieve them quite easily. You know, and that to go to that, re, you know, it's, so symmetric aggregates is a great example, but there's lots of other things where you can define really complicated logic, like case statements, for example, nested case statements, where again, you never want to try to keep track of those in raw SQL. But in, in ML, where you can say, you know, here's a set of case statements that defines this one dimension, but then I want to define another dimension and I want to use the case that I've already uh, defined as part of that definition. And I don't have to rewrite that whole thing. I can just reference it. Makes it you know, much easier to build these complex uh, things in, in SQL because you're not the one writing the SQL. Um, and, and so I think that idea of reusability, which is really core to programming, right? You know, the, the DRY is the, the acronym that they use. Don't repeat yourself, right? You do something once, you define it in one place, and then you reuse it rather than redefining it. And that has a ton of, of 
you know, of uh, advantages because it allows you to build more complex structures. It also means that when you change something, which is certainly happens a lot in the data world, you change it in one place and it propagates out into all the other places. You don't have to then go track down every occurrence of some variable uh, and change it in all those different places, which is a pretty common occurrence when you're looking at a bunch of, you know, SQL recipes and you go, all right, I have to search this whole directory for every occurrence of this field because that field has now changed its meaning. And so I have to go replace all of those, find and replace all of them. Yeah. And I suppose I'd like to get on in a moment to talk about, I suppose, specifics of working on BigQuery and, and how we interact with the database there and so on. But one of the other things that was particularly a, a plus point for you guys was the fact that all your, I suppose, metadata is stored in GitHub uh, or certainly in, rep in GitHub repos and that sort of thing. Yeah. That, that, that's, a, that's an immediate kind of, yeah, plus with any kind of engineering department now. I mean, again, t t tell us about how that works and, and the use of things like kind of GitHub and your kind of looker blocks and that sort of thing. How, how does that kind of work? Yeah, I mean, so so Git, uh, GitHub, or it's actually Git, Git is yeah, the versioning system, yeah. and then we generally use GitHub, but you can use whichever yeah. Git versioning uh, repository you want. But, you know, that, that's that been built into our, our platform since the very beginning, because again, something that engineers have figured out a while ago, and data analysts have not. Um, and so, rather again, rather than reinventing the wheel, we said, yeah, that's that's a great idea. It would be very useful to be able to roll back to an earlier state or understand who changed this definition at what point in the past and why. Um, and that's all things that you know that are are deeply uh, integrated into developer workflows, but haven't been part of analyst workflows. And so, because LookML is code, uh, but very simple code, it's code that really makes sense to SQL writers, um, you know, and not a GUI. Uh, it's very easy for us to build in versioning. Uh, and, and so it's been there since the beginning. Whereas, you know, if you're looking at a GUI based system, it's much harder to understand how you would version that uh, in, in that context. So, you know, I think that that goes to this, this core idea of let's not reinvent the wheel, you know, same thing with our visualizations, you know, where Looker runs entirely in your browser, it's web native. And so again, we could have written a library to do our visualizations from scratch, but you know, D3 is is amazing and gorgeous and incredibly flexible. And there, you know, there's a huge community out there around that. So why wouldn't we make use of of visualizations that that already exist? And so that gives us, you know, dynamic, interactive visualizations, you know, that are JavaScript that that run right in the browser really beautifully. Fantastic. So so let's so again, when I saw you, I suppose, in the flesh, I suppose, recently was when you uh, presented alongside Dan at, at the Google Next event. And you did you, two of you did a very good presentation on uh, it was entitled uh, about you know, data modeling on BigQuery and, and, and so on. Mm -hmm. And and the, something that was interesting on there that I'd like to talk to you about is what is what is analytics and BI like on a platform like Google BigQuery? You know, how how you know, how does how do the table structures look like? How does how do you form kind of queries, but particularly things like joining? and indexes and stuff that we would take for granted in a, in a more traditional database that's different really isn't it and dan opened it quite nicely i think you talked about it as well saying that just be aware that we're working with a distributed data store here and it's different to a relational database i mean tell us a bit about that what what's what what do we have to be aware of when we're doing bi on top of kind of a a, a platform like bigquery yeah i mean so i think for for anybody who hasn't experienced bigquery you should go try it out uh it's there's i think your first terabyte of processing per month is free so there's no reason not to just go check it out that i mean i, I have to say across all of the cloud uh, data warehouses that is one of the things that i love that you you don't have to go buy an appliance it just you just log in and they give you some free credits and you can play around and you know my experience with them is they they pretty uniformly coming from the world of mysql and postgres they blow my hair back i just can't 
can't believe how fast they are. Um, but, you know, I think BigQuery particularly, it it is so simple in terms of the, the DevOps requirements um, that you stop worrying about things that you're just used to worrying about. Indexing is a great example. There's no concept of indexing in BigQuery. That's just not something that you have to worry about. They worry about it. Compression is another thing. They were let Google handle your compression is not something that you have to worry about. And in fact, it's not something you even can worry about. They handle it for you. Um, and so I think, you know, the Dan's point um, and, and, you know, I talked about this from the BI side. He talked about it from the sort of um, the schema side and the database side. But but I think our sort of joint point was that when you're dealing with this whole new environment where a lot of the constraints that have historically attached to uh, to to the ways that you do things um, are gone. When those are gone, you, you really need to go back to first principles and ask yourself, why am I doing this rather than just assuming that, well, I'm going to do it this way because it's always been done this way, right? And so, you know, I think if your if your goals are around, you know, simplicity and accurately representing the the real world in your data. Uh, and making it easy for other people to understand your schema, if you're keeping those first principles in mind, rather than saying, oh, well, we do snowflake schemas because we always do snowflake schemas. Oh, we do third normal form because that is how we have always done it, right? That is how we've always done it, but we've always done it that way for a reason, which is which is those those first principles are the reasons, right? And because of the the limitations of the hardware, we had to do it. That was the only way you could do that, but that is not the only way you can do it now. And so, um, so you really do need to go back and examine those first principles and, and understand where they came from, understand a little bit about the history. And, and frankly, it's question, you know, those are questions we get all the time from customers, people who are coming from, you know, a, a big heavyweight Oracle data warehouse that they've had for, for 20 years on premise. And they say, all right, we're ready to move to BigQuery. We're ready to move to the cloud. What do we do? <laughs> like we, <Yeah. laughs> we, we don't, how do we structure our data? What's the right way to structure our data? Mm. I mean, I think. I will say that one of the great things about um, about BigQuery is that it's very forgiving. It is so powerful that you can make a lot of little mistakes and they really don't hurt you. Um, you know, the, the query takes uh, 2.1 seconds to return instead of two seconds to return. Um, so, you know, I, I think you do start to get up to data volumes where you want to be thoughtful about how you model your data, how you structure it. And I think there are a lot of neat uh, things that BigQuery makes possible. Uh, to, to improve that. But, you know, it is for, for <laughs> certainly if you're talking about, um, you know, megabytes or gigabytes of data, you know, millions of rows instead of billions of rows, the, the penalty is very, very small. So you, you really do have a very forgiving database. Whereas in the past, if you made those kinds of mistakes, you'd be, you'd be spinning for 24 hours and never get a result. So do you typically find that there's, in a project that would involve BigQuery and, and, and Looker, is there going to be a, in quotes, kind of optimization or performance optimization phase in those projects? I mean, certainly my finding has been it just works. The whole thing broadly just works. And, you know, you, you, I, I guess in BigQuery, you're trying to avoid joins. You you, you know, there's no indexes, but that's because it's fast anyway. Is that, I mean, do, do, in your experience, do projects typically work okay performance-wise or is there a process that goes on to optimize the kind of the big query table structures and so on? What's your experience on that? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it, it really depends on the scale of the data that, that the customers are dealing with. So if you're dealing with, you know, if you're coming out of a Postgres or a MySQL or a SQL server environment, the reality is your data can't possibly be big enough to challenge BigQuery, right? BigQuery is going to laugh at your data scale and make quick work of it no matter how badly you model it. If, on the other hand, you're coming out of a Hadoop, you know, world where you had a giant data lake and you're trying to make that perform it, then you you start to get to the scale where optimizations really do matter. Um, you know, and I think there are there are a ton of those optimizations, all of which work in Looker, and that's really one of the keys to our architecture, right? Because we're um, because we're we're architected without our own proprietary analytic engine we are reliant on the underlying data warehouses. And so as a result, we have to work really, really well with them, right? We have to take full advantage of all of their, their tricks um, and all their power. And so, you know, when, when BigQuery rolled out standard SQL to replace their legacy SQL over uh, last summer, that was immediately in our next release, you know, the, a couple weeks later, um, when they rolled out an integration with Google Sheets where you can use a Google spreadsheet as if it were a table BigQuery, so you could have a billion row table in BigQuery and have a 50 row mapping table in uh, in Google Sheets and join those two together as if they both lived in your data warehouse. Next release, you know, that was out in, in a couple of weeks. Um, you know, support for nested tables, which I talked about a bunch at, at uh, Google Next. Uh, similarly, they just rolled out uh, for BigQuery a hyperlog log implementation, which allows you to do things like count distinct um, on on aggregates and, you know, really importantly, allows you to sort of keep the intermediate state of those aggregates so that you can take advantage of that. So you can you can initialize a, um, a sort of hyperlog log calculation, keep a running log of that. So, for example, you know, we we might use that on IP addresses in our internal logs. Right. That's a thing. You know, we we log something about, uh, you know, where a user logs in from. Um, we don't actually need the underlying information, but we do want to know how many different, uh, you know, addresses are being used. Uh, and so we can keep a running tally of that, a running count of this distincts using this intermediate calculation that BigQuery uh, exposes to you. And so things like that are really powerful ways to, to re, you know, to sort of improve the performance of BigQuery. Um, and I will say with BigQuery, the funny thing is that it really, it, you have to work very hard to get BigQuery to go slow. Um, but BigQuery can get expensive because BigQuery charges on a query basis. So it depends on how much data you've scanned. So rather than getting slow, it just gives you more power, uh, which is uh, a heady experience, but um, but can get expensive if you're not careful. And so, um, you know, so we're very cognizant of that and try to counsel our, our customers on how to take full advantage of the performance optimizations. Um, and then also, um, you know, have built things into the tool where Looker will use uh, BigQuery's API to tell you before you run the query, how much is it going to cost? How many how many gigabytes are you going to scan? And you can even then set um, you know a, a limit so that people can't accidentally run a runaway query that's going to cost a hundred dollars or a thousand dollars. You can do that all right in Looker's connection. And you know I think that's that speaks to our sort of really deep native integration with these tools that we want to take full advantage of those things. It's not this is not a a sort of afterthought. It's not 
that we were architected for one world and now we're trying to figure out how to exist in the new world. This is really goes deeply to, to the way that we were architected from the very beginning. And I'd say that that is not to be underestimated. I mean, certainly, again, my experience with, with tools that were from the kind of more, I suppose, on-premise small data set world. Um, so, for example, Tableau or Power BI or, or any of those tools really that came along with with kind of big, with big query support. The issue with those is they're either based on having uh, a kind of cache layer, and, and that really isn't, I mean, I know you've got obviously persistent tables in, in, in kind of Looker, but in general, you know, you, in, in that kind of environment, particularly BigQuery, you, you can't be relying on having a cache there. But- Well, you, well I mean, why bother? Yeah. Right? Why, yeah. why bother scaling up and, and going to the cloud and using yeah. this incredibly powerful yeah. uh, <laughs> warehouse yeah. and then use it to pull an extract out and put yeah. it on your local server? It's not, it's not practical. It's not practical. And the other thing really is, and that's a good point you made there about, about um, uh, being mindful of the way these things are charged. So you know, if you look at, again, you look at, for example, how, how certain BI tools work, they will go and retrieve the entire data set, first of all, and then they will kind of lay it out for you to select the columns. Whereas BigQuery, because of the way, obviously, that, that, that it charges, it charges per you know, amount of data you bring back and so on. The thing that clinched it for us with, 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 with Looker was the fact that it was much more economical in how it retrieved data. It's much more cognizant, really, of how kind of BigQuery works. And, and I'm saying BigQuery all the time here, but this is kind of a similar story to all of these new style columnar kind of, you know, hybrid big data sort of systems that run in the cloud now. You've got to be aware of how yeah, I mean, we, they charge for things and, and, be, and work along with that. Yeah, we're, we're very cognizant. We only join uh, a table when you actually need a dimension from mm. that table, right? Mm. We're, we're very cognizant. And you know, it results in SQL that you can, you know, the SQL that, that Looker is writing is always available right behind a tab. You just one click and you can see exactly what the SQL that Looker is writing in, which is great because you can see, you can debug, right? If you're an analyst and someone says, hey, I don't think that this is quite right, you can look at the SQL immediately and say, oh, you're right, you know what, we made a little mistake in the model, let's go fix that. You fix that, you push it to production, they, re they hit refresh on their browser and it, and it works properly. And so we're not, we, we do not believe in black boxes. We think black boxes and, and true analysis, real valuable analysis don't get along very well together. And so we wanna be really transparent about what we're doing and that means that we have to be clean uh, you know, sun, sunlight is the best disinfectant. And so we we are really we want to be clear and, and transparent about what we're doing. And so we make it very visible so that folks can can trust what we're doing. OK, so to wrap up, then um, tell, tell I mean, just tell the listeners, how would they how would they get some exposure to Looker? How would they maybe get hold of a trial or how would they kind of understand some of these concepts around LookML? Yeah, what, what's the next step if somebody's interested and they want to kind of take this further and, and, and understand a bit more, really? Yeah, I mean, we'd love to talk to them. They can they can come to Looker.com and uh, and sign up for for a demonstration or a free trial. We give a, a free 30 day trial um, where we'll you know work with you to set up a, a, a Looker instance right on your database uh, so that you can explore your own data and see how powerful it is. You know, our documentation is is fully available uh, mm. on the web publicly, so you can go sort of check out LookML if you're really interested in the the concepts there. But I I really do think Lloyd Lloyd actually said this to me in our very first conversation when he was trying to sell me Looker for the first time, but he said, you know, I'm not that good at explaining what Looker is. Let me just show you. Mm. Um, I think that's that's really our experience that we're we're getting better at explaining what it is, but it's mm. still there's still nothing more powerful than seeing it in action. Fantastic. Well, look, Daniel, it's been it's been fantastic speaking to you. And I'll also I'll put the link to the uh, the video of your uh, presentation with with Dan McClary in the show notes as well. I mean, that's just fantastic. Kind of think um, uh, story from where we were in the past with three and models and so on through to kind of where we are now. 
Um, but no, it's been it's been great to speak to you. Um, thank you very much for coming on the show. And um, yeah, thank you very much. And uh, it's been great to speak to you. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Thanks.